Well, welcome to the second Sunday of Epiphany. My name is Todd. Epiphany, of course, means manifestation. And in Epiphany, we focus on those early narratives in which Jesus is presented and presents himself to the world. The Magi, baptism tonight, um, first miracle at Cana. And in a sense, of course, if Jesus is the Alpha and Omega, and the arc of Jesus' life really tells the story of God's relentless pursuit of us in love, then really it is not just the manifestation of Jesus we're talking about, but the manifestation of God's whole plan and whole story for us. And so at Epiphany, we, we turn to that. God's bigger plan as manifested through his son Christ and the giving of the Spirit. Um, I'm gonna be talking about uh, four words when I get into it. They're on this canvas. Um, water, voice, name, and spirit. But before we get to those, and thinking of the kind of, um, the idea of manifesting Christ and our faith to the world, I wanna talk about two features of living in the modern world that make manifesting Christ and our faith difficult for us moderns. One of these has been a growing uncertainty for the last 200 years or so, maybe longer, about the existence of God, or at least the God of the Christian faith. You know, several historical events over this time have converged to kind of destabilize people's sense of whether God is really there. And I'm thinking, of course, of um, Darwin's observations of natural selection or geologists' exploration of the age of the earth and how these kind of grew into theories popularly in which there was no place for God. And you know, chiefly this was because in a materialist worldview, where all that matters is matter, God cannot be tested or observed in the same way that fossils and rocks and species can be. So for many over the last couple of centuries and decades, this fascination with science's power to explain life through doubt on Christianity's truth claims and has made it more difficult for people to open. And even today, I work in university, I've been around universities, um, really this materialist assumption about the universe, that really all that is is only what can be measured, has really carried the day in departments of science in the US university and that the existence of God simply is not plausible because it cannot be tested. Now having said that, by the way, I will say that there are still more Christians among scientists, if you don't know this, than there are among other kinds of faculty, social sciences and those in humanities. But still, as Christians, we have had to deal with this bias, this materialist bias that because God cannot show up in scientific paradigms, perhaps he does not exist. So that's the first feature of manifesting Christianity to the world in Christ that makes it a little more difficult for us as moderns. The second feature would be the question of morality, of right and wrong, of what constitutes the good life. And this has been challenged by the rise of pluralism, the rise of many kind of philosophies, many religions, in a world that increasingly has a hard time 
affirming that one of those might be able to make truth claims. Now this pluralism is, is part of what we love about America. It's part of what makes it a great place. A place where people can choose wisdom traditions, where they can peaceably live alongside people who follow other wisdom traditions, and that we can even dialogue about these things with one another. So pluralism is a part of the American fabric and it's a good part of the American fabric. It's allowed us to pursue the wisdom tradition and truths of our faith. And yet increasingly in the popular mind, this pluralism has created a skepticism and doubt about whether anyone can claim to know right and wrong and what constitutes the good life. So much so that now even if you hold convictions about right and wrong, the suspicion is that you are misled or even worse, not to be trusted. So these two cultural trends, the materialist bias against the existence of God and the kind of philosophical or pluralistic bias against moral conviction have obviously called for a response among Christians over the decades, over the last couple of centuries. In other words, Christians have had to talk about these things. <laughs> We've had to talk about the existence of God. We've had to talk about notions of right and wrong because simply this is where the culture has been at. This is the question, these are the questions the culture has been asking. And we've had to talk a lot about it. And so those who have been doing the good work in various kinds of apologetics like faith in science or natural law or philosophical arguments for the existence of God, in, the, in its best forms, this has been an important and loving work. What they're trying to do is they're trying to create what are called plausibility structures. A plausibility structure is simply a set of ideas that a person is willing or unwilling to entertain as possibly true. People's plausibility structures over the last century or so have begun to exclude the idea of God. They're increasingly unwilling, even if they're on weak philosophical ground, increasingly unwilling to entertain this as plausible. And those who work in these apologetics are simply trying to open the minds of people once again to see these things as plausible so that they might create favorable conditions for the reception of the gospel. And I can tell you that my, my colleagues, for instance, in philosophy, who go to the philosophical associations, have said this is now the case, that if you are a uh, professional philosopher, you cannot exclude solid arguments for the existence of God. These have to be entertained. They may not agree with them, they may not come to believe them, but they've been welcomed back into the realm of plausibility. And so this has been good work. The downside to all of this that we've had to do as Christians over the last many decades, talk about the existence of God, talk about right and wrong, is that it makes it seem like that is the core of what Christianity is about. <laughs> so popular notions of Christians are people who are preoccupied with truth and who are preoccupied with being right. of correcting or even legislating the behavior of others. And what is probably more problematic is that many Christians have come to believe that's the core of our faith too, because we've had to defend it and talk about it so much. Come to believe that the core of our faith is demonstrating the truth, defending it, and upholding right belief and right behavior. Sometimes I worry, as someone who's involved in a Christian university, that there has become such a defensive posture 
And while we're doing a good job of training students to defend the faith, I sometimes worry we've been distracted from the primary apologetic of helping us all live it out. But there it is. It does beg the question then, what is the core of the Christian faith? What is to be manifested in the person of Jesus? Well, I think our passages suggest that it is this, that God created us, Jesus redeemed us, and the Spirit has indwelt us so that we might have life, which can only be found in a love relationship with God. And Jesus says so much right in John 10, 10, I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. And a few chapters later he says, you must abide in the vine if you're to have this life and do nothing apart from me. So there it is. The core of our faith is a relationship with God through the redemption of Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You see, the primary terms for Christian, for Christians are not right and wrong. The primary terms for believers are life or death. So Paul tells the church in Ephesians, remember you Gentiles, there was a time when you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship. Paul says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. He didn't say you were wrong, of course they were wrong. <laughs> he says you were dead. And so for the Christian, the primary terms are life and death, and life is associated with relationship with God, and death is associated with separation from God. Well, that's my rather long preface to where I think our pastors are pointing us today as we think about what is it to manifest Christ and in fact, the whole gospel message. And I'm gonna look at four words that in fact, uh, I think point us to that. And one would be the repeated word of water in our readings. Now water has a rich and symbolic presence in the scripture. And one of these symbolic lanes in the scripture is water as a chaotic, a powerful, and deadly force that only God can tame. So at the very beginning in Genesis 1-2, of course, we have something called the deep that is over the earth. Water that's associated with chaos, and even later in the scriptures with a kind of cosmic battle as God battles with these sea creatures and monsters. So water in the scriptures is this kind of pervasive, often dangerous, overwhelming natural force. And indeed when we have the flood narrative in Noah, you have the return of those waters that um, possibly separate us from God, that speak chaos and danger. The sea for the, in the Hebrew imagination was this kind of uncontrollable space, right? You can't really easily mark the sea. You can't create a visible path through the sea. You can be lost in it. <laughs> and when you are lost on the ocean, you feel like you're separated from everyone and everything. I don't know about you, but I think I would rather be lost in the wilderness <laughs> than lost at sea. I remember one time on a speedboat with my friends off the shore of Laguna, a ways off the shore of Laguna. My two friends driving in front, I was sitting back. I thought I would do something adolescently, stupidly macho. And I jumped off the back of the boat, gave a big shout, splashed in the water, thinking they would just laugh and be delighted and turn around and fetch me. 
What I didn't count on is that the sound of the motor was louder than the sound of my shout. They didn't hear me. So off goes the boat into the distance. And there I was, impossibly far from shore to swim. And I really understood when people say they have an oceanic feeling of loneliness. <laughs> That's what I had. This ocean, this, this primal mass was separating me from everything and I thought, I am in trouble. Fortunately, one of them happened to look back and saw my two little arms waving. <laughs> I could not save myself. So water in the Hebrew imagination is this strong, often restless uh, element that can separate us from God and including uncrossable rivers like the Red Sea and are a symbol for them of separation and hopelessness. So in our Isaiah passage today, the prophet is speaking to those who are separated in another way, in Babylonian exile, and he says to them, do not fear, I have redeemed you. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. The Christian life is about life and death. Life is God's presence. It is Emmanuel, God with us, even in those places that seem to separate us from him. He is still with us. Now we have better boats today and probably have less fear of the water, although I'm sure you all have fearful water stories. But it could be that you and I have other symbols of separation from God, other places where we feel a fearful separation from him. Could be an empty house, empty nesters. Could be a fear of failure at work. Some of you are far from home and family. Weekend evenings can feel like a fearful separation, a holiday even. An oceanic feeling in bed at night can feel like a place of separation from God. Well, wherever it is, God speaks to you through those waters and says, do not fear, I am with you. You are precious in my sight, and I love you. That's a quote from your Isaiah reading. So God has the power to bridge death, and neither angels nor demons, nor things present nor things to come, nor any powers, nor height nor depth, can separate us from the love of Christ. That is the first thing that our passages speak of, that God is with us. It is about life. And this brings us to the second term, voice. For the scriptures often portray this power, this nothing can keep him out power of God through his voice. And so in your Psalm 29 reading we read, ascribe to the Lord you heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness for the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. He sits enthroned over the flood. It is the voice of God that the Hebrews primarily thought of when they thought of their powerful but invisible God. They thought of the voice of him that cuts through the distances and separations and dangers. The disciples in Luke 8, of course, were in a boat. Jesus is asleep. The place is rocking. They wake him up, master, master, we're going to drown. He gets up and just rebukes the wind and the waves, the storms inside, and they are freaked out. 
In fear and amazement, they ask one another, who is this? He commands even the winds and the waters to obey him. He is the Lord over the waters. So the voice of God is, for the Hebrews, the symbol of God's ultimate power to bridge the separation that death might bring and to bless his people. But I want to say to you, to this voice, there's also an intimate side. Not just the power of God's voice, but the intimacy of God's voice. And we hear this in our passages in the word name. He calls us by name. In Isaiah 43:1, do not fear for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. And of course, in our Luke 3 passage, when Jesus comes out of the water of his baptism, Luke writes that the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, not an actual dove. You, didn't, you don't see an actual dove, but the writer says it was kind of like a dove. It was something kind of like a dove. And a voice from heaven comes and says, you are, and he names him, my son, in whom I am well pleased. The core of the Christian story is about life and death, separation or connection. And the speaking of a name in scripture is a profound moment of personal connection. Perhaps unlike our sensibilities, names in the scriptures were given to kind of bring out the essence of a person. But even still for you and me, when someone calls our name, we kind of feel like they're calling out us in particular. When I put my children to bed and when they were younger, I used to say, you know, God doesn't just love everybody, he does, but not like this mass kind of you know, blanket of love, he actually loves you in particular. My daughter's names are Carly and Abby, and I would say to him, he loves your Carliness, Carly. He loves your Abbiness, Abby. And of course that's true, if you have children, you don't just kind of blanketly love your children, you actually love them in particular, you know them. People who know our names make us feel good because they might always know, also know something about us feels good when we're in an anonymous crowd and somebody shouts from across the room, Todd, Dottie, Julie. I think of Abby's first day at a new school a few years ago and she was very nervous, of course, about entering the school, but all of a sudden she heard these people, Abby! All these kids rushed up and knew her from soccer. She felt like she belonged. And indeed, that seems to be the force of a name. When someone calls your name, you feel like you belong. See, it's not just son in our Luke 3 passage. It is my son. It's a name of belonging. And after he says, I have called you by name in our Isaiah passage, he then says, you are mine. So the name spoken by God to us is not just a knowledge of us, but that we belong to him. There's also talk in scripture, by the way, of us receiving a new name in Revelation 2, 7, given to us by God, and we're told that no one knows that name except God and us. (laughs) He'll give it to us on a white stone, and this is incredibly intimate portrayal that only he and I will know the name that he gives us. I wonder what your name will be. What would you like your name to be? What would you ask God to call you? His voice will speak to you a new name and knows your name even now. And finally, this brings us to this last word, spirit, and points us to the Father's most powerful gift of his presence of life in Jesus and his spirit. So the Israelites here at this moment, though not in exile, 
were certainly under colonization by the Romans, and they are filled with expectation because this might be the Messiah, the one they've been waiting for for hundreds of years. And John makes it absolutely clear, of course, that he's no ordinary person. He says, I am not worthy to untie the thong of this person's sandal. And he actually baptized not just with water, but also with fire, which is a reference to the ability to purify us, to make all things new, to give us life. But here's, here's the riddle. Why does the Spirit descend upon Jesus when clearly he was already the Spirit of God? And why does he get baptized when he clearly had no need of cleansing? Well, because this voice in scripture that speaks life to us, that knows our name, has now become a presence. He is God with us. And he stands with us, pointing the way through the symbol of baptism and through his posture of prayer to the Father that we might be brought to new life. The Christian life is about life or death in this life. Relation or separation. So that when Jesus tells the disciples that he must leave in John 16, they get really scared and confused. And as has been said before from up here, Jesus then says something shocking. He says, actually it's good for you if I leave. Because then I'll be able to send the Holy Spirit who will be able to love you on the inside. See, I can only love you from the outside now. But I want to actually be in you I want you to be able to live in union with me, not just in companionship with me. And that's not something they will understand until the Spirit comes. In March 1945, just one month before he was executed, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a poem that you have in your insert. Now he was in and out of detainment for a few years of his pastoral life, pastor of a church, for defying the Third Reich, and ultimately he was imprisoned for his part in a plot to assassinate Hitler that failed. And a month before he was executed, which was just weeks before the war ended, Bonhoeffer wrote this poem. And throughout the first part of the poem, he's actually looking for some comfort He's looking maybe to his own goodness. Maybe I am strong and free, but my yearnings tell me differently because he has to confess that he's desperately lonely. Who am I? They often tell me I step from my cell's confinement calmly, cheerfully, firmly, like a squire from his country house. Who am I? They also tell me I bore the days of misfortune equably, smilingly, proudly, like one accustomed to win. In other words, people are telling him, wow, you're, you're really bearing up well. <laughs> you're really doing well under this imprisonment. Even the guards were saying, wow, you are, you're amazing. And yet he had to say on the inside he was desperate. Am I then really all that which other people tell me of? Or am I only that what I'm experiencing? Restless and longing and sick like a bird in a cage, struggling for breath as though hands were compressing my throat, yearning for colors, for flowers, for the voices of birds, thirsting for words of kindness, for neighborliness, tossing in expectation of great events, powerlessly trembling for friends at an infinite distance, weary and empty at praying, at thinking, at making, faint, and ready to say farewell to it all. 
Who am I? Am I this person or the other that people talk about? Am I one person today, another person tomorrow? Am I both at once a hypocrite before others? And before myself, a contemplative, woebegone weakling? He goes on like this for a little bit. But what really strikes me are the last two lines. Who am I? He says, they mock me, these lonely questions of mine. And he kind of gives up. He gives up trying to find life in his own character, in his own goodness, and how strong he is. He gives up trying to find life in his own success, his own individual virtues. He says, I, I can't figure out that, how good I am. And I don't even want that to be the source of my life. So he ends saying, whoever I am, thou knowest, O God, I am thine. I love that last phrase because that middle phrase, thou knowest, could go with both sides of that sentence. On the one hand, thou knowest whoever I am. <laughs> whoever I am, you know God. He felt known. He feels known. On the other hand, he says, what you also know is that I am yours. Whoever I am, you knowest I am yours. Christian life is about finding life with God. And many of the people out there are walking about in a desperate loneliness, a desperate apartness that when they're not distracted feels a little bit like death. So what are the takeaways? Well, one for me was I was sitting in my place I love to go for breakfast, Rooster Cafe, Bristol and Randolph. And I was looking at the people coming in. I was thinking of the dove descending or the thing like a dove descending on Jesus. And I just wondered how many of these people have accepted the gift of the spirit of life. I actually imagined the spirit hovering around them, just wanting to come in, wanting to descend, wanting to give them life, not just right and wrong, not just truth and falsehood, but life. And you know, this week I began to see the world that way. I've seen people walking around, I wonder, do they have the gift of the Spirit? Do they have life? Or are they living in a separation that often feels like death? And the other question I had asked myself this week was, am I opening to life? Am I opening to the invitations now that I have the Spirit to accept more and more and explore more and more what it means to live this abundant life so that I in turn might long for others to experience it. The manifestation of Jesus, the epiphany of Jesus, is that he came to give us life and to give us that abundantly. Take a few moments just to live in that truth as we close.